in five, four, three, two, one, and welcome everyone to another great episode of Breaking Bread with Corey. Thank you so much for everyone for joining us today. I am going to take a moment to just set these wheels in motion. Do, 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 do. Hope everybody's doing well. Hello, hello. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Hello. Da, 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 da. How's everybody doing? Da, 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 da. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, 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 hello. Just getting last minute, getting myself straightened out here. All right, let's see. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today, giving me a, a, a moment to get everything set up. Hopefully, you guys can uh, hear me loud and clear. Thank you all. Hello, hello, Jay. Hello. I love it. I love it. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I always say thank you for all your support and love. Um, this has been a, an amazing journey. Uh, I have two count them two amazing shows back to back with two lovely and inspiring ladies of the industry i can't say enough but before i do that because i don't want i, I want to let them introduce themselves i'm going to talk about just a, a few seconds about my pairing today i have another fun crafted uh, uh pairing today highlighting miss Jeremy laws Jeremy wine that's right Jeremy's beautiful wine her white blend it's a blend, combination of Roussan Marsan and Viognier I call that the ballerina of varietals absolutely gorgeous and delicious and I'm pairing that with two fun pairings I'm actually doing um, some apples with some caramel sauce and then I have a handcrafted uh, little date bite roll that I got from Trader Joe's it's pretty simple it just comes in a little package like this I'm going to show you and don't mind the packaging how i ripped it i was just really hungry but it looks like that and um i just wrapped it with new zealand grass-fed cheddar which had been aged for a minimum of six months and absolutely delicious but i'm pairing it uh absolutely gorgeous wine gorgeous pairings for a cloudy day in the pacific northwest what what better way to bring out the sun right mm. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous, and now we are going to get the show started. So go ahead and buckle up and let's go. Let's see who I got. Hello, hello. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all. I really appreciate the love and the support. Thank you all. Let's see if the magic of technology. Let's see if we can. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> really really good just trying to survive i have this back injury i've been ailing for the past what since november and 
So it's just been a headache a little bit. It's but, so hard. Back stuff is so hard. It just because it yeah. impacts everything. Especially when it comes to workman comp back stuff. Mm -hmm. You never, everything is not always the way it seems on consistency. But I'm making my way. Uh, I'm enjoying life. I'm having great wine, great company, breaking bread with an amazing ambassador. I am just so, so, so excited to share the screen with you. And even more excited ever since I saw you on screen just a few, what I would say a few hours ago. I watched you in a little documentary with, oh, that's with so Tara Gomez. Oh, Tara's wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad you got oh, to yeah. see that. Yeah. What an, an inspiring story and just everything and the way you, you storytell it. But um, I don't want to jump ahead. So without further ado, let's, let's get it started. Let's introduce yourself. Go ahead. <laughs> well, let me say I love your, um, your description, the ballerina of wine, the Roussan Marsan blend, like that, that yeah. toe point, you know, spinning idea. I love that. What a beautiful image. And I, Thank you. And Thank it's you. so, um, it's, it's fantastic to see you tasting her wine too. It's something that she's, I haven't been able to have it. We don't have it out here in California yet. So I'm really looking forward to when I get to. Absolutely gorgeous. She is, Another great ambassador to the industry. I was I was honored to sit with her and break bread with her, and just to taste her wine is just absolutely just delicious and fun. So, cool. That's great. <laughs> um, so what on earth to say about myself? Well, so Elaine, I, I'm Elaine Chacon Brown. I was born and raised in Alaska. Besides my daughter and myself, the rest of my family are still up there. Um, I'm the youngest of three girls. Um, Grew up commercial fishing for salmon, starting at the age of nine in Bristol Bay, Alaska. So that's gill netting. Um, really very serious physical labor. And um, so it's really kind of, it was pretty formative of just sort of who I am in the world and how I approach things. Um, getting You know, just starting at such a young age doing that. Absolutely. And then um, in my 20s, I left commercial fishing and, and just sort of decided to try all the stuff I could get my hands on that that was legal and not going to hurt anyone else. And so I just um, did a lot of driving around the country, doing all sorts of different odd jobs and fun stuff, and then um, ended up going into academia, did doctoral work in philosophy and was university faculty for a while. And then after the global financial crisis, um, you know, it just became a really difficult time to be an academic. And so I still stayed a few years after, after that, you know, first hit, but I um, just realized it was time to start looking at other stuff. And I kind of accidentally started working in wine. So that's been, um, I left my academic contract January 6, 2012. So it's not quite 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I I really wanted to ask you. That was the first question I wanted to ask you. You're like, it, it, like when you're talking about fishermen. I was like, when you're talking about fishing, I was like, are you were you like deadliest catch? Were you up early in the morning, get it on a boat and catch and stuff like that? What was it like? Yeah. So deadliest catch. The so crab fishing is literally the most dangerous um, fishery in the world. It's you know because you're high seas, open boat. Um, really, really exposed, and and it's winter, so the seas are rougher, and it's you could easily freeze to death hitting the water. Um, the kind of and it, you know it's like, like I said, it's high seas, it's open ocean, and so the kind of fishing that I grew up doing was actually it's called um, set netting, and so it's gill, you know, um, 
crab fishing, they're like scooping up crab pots, you know? And right. so it's like single units, you pull them up and, and um, there's a lot of machinery to help. But what I was doing is actually gill netting. And what that means is you basically have like a, cur a net that's um, uh, 50 fathoms long, a fathom deep. So it's six feet to a fathom. So it's about six feet deep and, you know, 50 times six um, long. And so you, um, you, in set netting, you put the net out, you have a rope that's anchored perpendicular to the shoreline and you tie the net onto the rope and the tide goes in and out over the net. And so <clears throat> the fish, you know, it hangs like a curtain in the water and the fish swim through, you know, they swim through and they get caught and can't back out either. And that's why it's called the gill net. Cause it's just like, you almost think of like di uh, diamond shaped triangles or uh, right. string, <laughs> diamond shaped string. You know, and they, they swim through and then that string, if they try to back out, the string catches in their gills. And so, <clears throat> so the fish, um, and you, you size, you know, this, the size of the netting changes depending on what species you're trying to catch. Cause right. that, you know, so if it's smaller, it swims through and, and um, if it's bigger, it usually just won't even, it'll kind of almost bounce and you turn, keep going. So, so that's what I grew up doing. But the big thing with, um, Gill nutting is it's all manual labor. So you don't have any equipment that helps. And, but at the same time, it's also bay fishing rather than high seas. Right. So there still was, could be really rough weather, but you can always see the shoreline. Um, right. That said, we, un unfortunately, there was always at least somebody in the region that drowned every year. Um, there were, uh, you know, there were years where like we would be on alert because somebody had fallen over somewhere and then gotten lost and so we would be like literally on alert expecting we could catch a body um and i like that <laughs> kind of formative to to me yeah. too because i grew up with that you know and <clears throat> um so the so yeah we, you know we would the peak of the season when most fish were coming in uh we we could be operating on less than two hours of sleep a day for for like weeks at a time and oh, so man. that's that's part of why I say it's really formative because I start you know starting at the age of nine I'd have these periods of the year where it didn't matter if you were tired it didn't matter if you were hungry it didn't matter if you had to go to the bathroom you just had to keep doing your work until it was done and you might not be you know that might be 18 hours of work straight and then you get like a three-hour break and you go back and you do it again and you just keep <clears throat> doing that however long the season lasts you know wow so, what type of, what, was it all season or was it a certain type of the year? Is like, well, so when I was growing up, the season was longer. And so we would, um, my, <clears throat> my mom and I would start on June 1st. That was legally when you were allowed to put your net out for the first time. You actually legally couldn't put it out before then. So um, she and I would go out before the rest of the family and we'd put our nets out like eight o'clock in the morning, June 1st. We would literally... She and I would literally be standing, you know, like we'd have chest waders on and we'd be standing in the water with holding the net on our shoulders. Um, and we'd tie off one end of the net on the running line. We'd hold the, hold the net above the water and like have our watch, like time for, for an alarm to go off at 8 a.m. The second 8 a.m. hit, we would drop the net and start rushing it out the running line so that we would be legal instantly. Because um, there was a period of time where people were... Um, uh, people were kind of competing for sp fishing spots and whoever was in first got, got that spot. 
and we had actually we had um you know grandfather rights on on our fishing um, spots but um because my literally the my great grandfather was one of the first native fishermen in the region it was actually not legal for native peoples to commercial fish until 1929 before that it was an entirely white industry so in 1929 wow. it became legal for Alaska natives to fish in their own region <laughs> and my great grandfather was uh, one of the first natives to begin fishing then and so he had actually gotten the first family spot for us back then but um there was just this there was a period of about a decade where people were contesting the historical spots and so we had to get out there and get our nets out first as soon as it hit 8 8 a.m. on June 1st so my mom and I would start then and then um, about two weeks later, the rest of the family would show up and they'd start fishing and they would fish for three weeks, which is during the peak of the season when the most fish are running. And then um, by mid-July, most of them would, they would quit. But the, but the back then there was what was called a late season. So the fish would still be coming in, but much more slowly. And okay. the main canneries that would buy the fish would have closed down but there would be a few people that would buy fish directly from the fishermen. We called them cash buyers because you'd mm -hmm. bring your catch to them and they'd give you cash in return. They'd weigh the fish and give you money per pound. You know, and I was back, I was in high school as a kid and I was trying to save up money. So I would stay and I'd fish alone until mid August, but all by cash. And so I'd get on the plane. I'd be this like 15 year old on the plane and I'd have like a thousand dollars cash in my pocket flying back to Anchorage, you know, because I had done late season. So yeah. Yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a much shorter season now. So when I was growing up, I fished, you know, three or three and a half months. And now they, they right. fish about a month, three weeks to a month. So and who were, who is your, your buyers who would, you would purchase your, your fish who would be the people that would be purchasing your fish. Yeah. So when I started, it was an entirely cannery based um, industry. So it was only, um, uh, uh, only canning operation. So, you know, you can go to um, grocery stores and there'll be little cans of salmon. So it was all that sort of fishing. The generation prior when my um, mom was fishing and her and her parents were fishing, it was actually, um, it was all uh, big size cans um, like that would go to like big, um, like company cafeterias and boarding houses and things like that. Okay. And then by the time I was growing up, it was still was canning based, but little cans. And, um, and then in my, in the time that I was fishing, the frozen market started increasing. So canneries would have like the best quality salmon that came in would go to the frozen market. And then, and then everything else would go to canning. Um, at the same time, there was always a row market and there would actually, every cannery would have a special team literally from Japan that would inspect the salmon row. And that would get boxed up separately and go to, straight to Japan. That was a really important part of the market that emerged in my wow. lifetime. But by the time I was about to quit fishing, they, the technology and travel had finally improved to the extent that it was possible to have fresh market as well. And so, right. and now we're all used to that idea, but like you can find, like even as far as New York, you can find fresh fish caught the day before. Right. And that didn't get started in, until the 90s and uh, right about the time I stopped fishing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about like the, like, what is it, the flash packing where you pack it yeah, like, exactly. right there? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah so you, they, um, you know, you can vacuum, you vacuum seal it to get all the air off. It's almost like the kind, same kinds of things we talk about with wine, you know, like a Corvin, yeah. you're putting argon, 
you know, you're just trying to get oxygen away from the wine. Well, similarly mm -hmm. with salmon, if you, um, if you want to transport it, you know, you get, you get it in a really cold environment and you seal it so there's no air on it, but without freezing it. And that's how you can serve it fresh in a restaurant all the way across the country, you know. But yeah, but that's amazing. all new technology. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, I, uh, you got you got some muscles. I see people <laughs> waving their muscles. That that's just like that's an inspirational story in itself. What you did when since you were young and you know as you got into your teens, that is just that's a that's amazing. You always hear stories like this, and then to ha actually have it shared is just yeah. you're just it's like empowering. You're like okay, I got to do. I got to go out and do something. I got to go do a hundred pushups. I got to get my kid and throw a hundred, you know, yeah, hundred yeah. pushups. I just, I just feel powerful. What an inspirational story. I love it. And how has, has that being brought up that way and doing this type of job? How is that better? I, I would say better um, suit you for what you had lying ahead, you know, all the goals. I know you you've been, you participate in a lot of things out there, but there's a lot of things that, including activism, that you that you really take a huge part in. How has that prepared you for that? Yeah, well, so um, yeah, growing up commercial fishing, I mean, the the big thing was, um, it, I I don't know, it's this really fundamental way of seeing the world where um, a lot of the stories when I've tried to describe what commercial fishing was like physically. Um, there was a period in my life where people would be fascinated. They'd really want me to tell them about fishing. And then I would tell them like just really basic factual stories. And they literally wouldn't believe me. They would tell me it was not physically possible. So as a, as an example, um, I was about 22 years old and we had the biggest tide of my life. Okay. So the biggest catch I ever got, um, we had a six hour opening. So there, we were only allowed to have the net out for six hours, but because of where our spot on, was to put the net out, that it was heavily impacted by the tide. So our net was only in the water for four hours, even though the opening, even though we were allowed to have the net out for six, actually it was only in the water for four. And in those four hours, my brother-in-law and I pulled in by hand 20,000 pounds of salmon by hand, all physical labor. And so, but the only reason I tell that story oh is God. because that does sound impossible, right? Like right. how on earth could two people, we pulled in each, basically we each pulled in 10,000 pounds of salmon in four hours, right? Like I did that myself. That just sounds unbelievable. But the point is that I grew up with this insurmountable task that I had to spend a quarter of the year doing. I couldn't control how many salmon came in. I couldn't control when they came in. I couldn't slow them down. Like if it, if the, if it was time to put the net out, you put the net out and however many salmon came in, you had to deal with them. There was no way to just leave some behind. Right. And so the thing was, there was, no, there was no room to ask, can I do this? Right. Cause you were the one there, you had to do it. And I really think that that, you know, and again, starting from the age of nine, that was the task I was given. If that thing is in front of you, you don't ask, can I do this? That's an irrelevant question because it's in yeah. front of you. That means you have to do it. So you just do, yeah. you just figure it out. And I think that's the <laughs> most, most important thing that, um, that fishing gave me was it just, it taught me that you're wasting time. If you ask, can I do this? 
you have to just start doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I would just think if you're sitting in a classroom with your fellow peers when you're nine years old and you have somebody complain about taking out the trash and you're like, you know what I just did? (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is like, that's crazy. I I mean, I I think you're like, man, what was I doing at nine years old? I think I was playing with GI Joe and like learning how to wash my clothes and stuff, but like literally pulling in 10,000 pounds of fish. You're like, really? (laughs) That's amazing. That is amazing. And so this journey has taken you on another journey. You, you, you taking another road and when when did it hit you like this this whole thing to get into the wine industry like what was it that got you really like what was the key moment that was like i want to be a part of this yeah i mean it's a little bit of a weird wandering answer but i so i was you know i was an academic and i was really committed to teaching i was basically um you know i was doing a lot of social justice work, except through the classroom environment, you know, and, and through mentoring students and helping with student, um, student groups and organizations and stuff like that. And um, because of the global financial crisis, we just kept getting hit with bigger and bigger budget cuts. And so our contracts weren't changing on paper, but the workload was going up and up and up because um, we just were losing people. We, and, and so there's more and more stuff for us to do. And I was getting really tired, you know, and um, I hit this point where I realized I, I have a choice. I can either lower my own standards and put less into my job or I can leave. Like there was no, there were no other options, you know, because I had to, I had to get done the job I had or I had to leave and I, and I, but I had, you know, I had, I put so much time into meeting with students one-on-one to make sure they were succeeding. And I was going to have to stop doing that. And I realized I wasn't willing to lower my standards because I was not, I was going to be unhappy with myself as a person if I did that. And I was going to be, that was going to mean I was also unhappy with my job. Like I, it would remove the reason I had that job to lower my standards. And so the option I had left was to leave teaching altogether. And, um, and so I, and it was terrifying because I had no, I had given everything to my faculty job. Like I had, I had like aimed my whole life. It's so hard to get a university faculty position and I had gotten one and I had aimed everything fully committed to that. And I decided to leave it. And it was terrifying because I didn't have another option. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't had a backup plan. The whole point was I was going to succeed at this. And the way I'm going to do that is by fully committing. I will, I'm going to do it. And, um, and so I was like getting progressively more and more tired and worn out and realizing I needed to leave it. And, um, and I was like, God, I don't even know what I'm going to do. And I realized I finally, it's almost like I like was sitting, I was sitting at the end of my this wine bar, my friend at my friend's wine shop wine bar. And I was like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. What do I, what else do I even like doing? And I like, look around and I'm like, I spent all my time here. <laughs> you know, I spent all my time at the wine shop wine bar. Maybe I should pay attention to that. You know? So then I started kind of exploring around like what options there were in wine and what, you know, what I could, um, what I could do. 
that's that's great. That's it's always that that moment where you cut tend to like take a step back and look around and go, well, what else do I want to do? And then you realize you're in it. Yeah, right yeah, there. you're, you're in it. There. Yeah. Well, and it's sweet too because that same chair. Anytime I go back to visit, um, that's in Flagstaff, Arizona. Anytime I go back to visit, um, my friend Fred, whose place it is, he knows I'm he knows mm-hmm. I'm on the way. And when I walk mm-hmm. in, he's put a reserved sign down on that same seat. It's like oh, that's her yeah. seat. You know, that's very sweet. Yeah. Where where is this at? Because I my my sister in law her family is was in Flagstaff, and so is there was it a particular place? Yeah, so the, it, at the time it was called the Wine Loft, but now it's Flag Terroir. Um, so it's uh, right on it's on San Francisco in downtown, but it's on the second floor of the building. Yeah, there's um, there's like art. It's above an art shop, like a Southwestern have- art shop. I haven't been a Flagstaff since I was probably what in the was it third, third or fourth grade. My sister-in-law's brother and I we were close to the same age, and I remember this is when I was a total like skater die. I was a total skater, and I wore, I still do it. I still wear shorts all the time. It could be even here in Oregon. I'll I'll be wearing shorts when it's like thirty degrees out, you know, twenty degrees out, <laughs> and I remember being out. And seen the, this is the first time I ever seen it snow, and so me and my sister in law's brother we we went out and we uh, we went skating in the snow, and mm-hmm. I was in shorts. There's pictures of me in shorts, and so I always have fond memories of Flagstaff when I hear Flagstaff, Arizona. Yeah, so, it's, it's funny. It. And there's totally. I feel like it's like a generational thing. Like our generation with so many skaters in our generation. But then all, you know, and the skaters always wear shorts and, uh, and certain kind of <laughs> shoes. But also, yeah. like, in Alaska, we, we, it was ridiculous. Like, in the middle of winter, I'd be running around without socks and, and little and shorts on. You know, it, it was winter and there was snow everywhere, but it didn't matter. That's just what you did, you know. And I, I, I tell my family now, now that I'm being acclimated to the cold, like, really acclimated to the cold, I always feel like, when I go back to California, I'm probably going to melt when it's 80 degrees, <laughs> yeah. you know, because no, before that, I'm so used to, yeah. before that, <laughs> <Yeah>. 80s hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even, even here, when it gets to like the 60s, we're like, we'll be on walks, we'll be peeling off clothes because it's so hot. And we're like, oh, this is crazy. But that's, that's, I, I love that, that story of you just finding your, the, 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 the ball goes off at this wine bar. And so where did it, where did it go from there? Um, where did it progress from there? What yeah. was the first thing that you wanted to jump on when you got hit, hit that moment? Well, I, um, I really didn't know because I didn't know what the job options were. I knew that there, my friend Fred, he would have me, he knew I was super into wine and really wanted to learn. And so anytime a distributor rep came in to pour him samples, he, he would let me know. So it's like, I would just get this text and it'd be like, be here at three 30, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I'd show up and there'd be the distributor reps and he'd be like, yes, Elaine's tasting with me today as well. You know? And it was, nice. he just made room, <laughs> you know, for me that way. Um, so I was doing that and I, I, I started asking them questions like, Oh, how, you know, how did they get started? What did they do? What was their job? Like, what was their favorite part? You know, did they have certifications? Had they studied just all that stuff? And, um, cause I kind of thought those were the two options. Like you can either pour wine or you sell wine and that's it. Right. But I would go, um, so I was really, I was starting to really taste as much as I could and kind of learn on the side. And then, um, I was the, really the pivotal moment was that I was at the wine shop wine bar with two friends of mine 
and they asked me to pick what we would drink. And I was like, oh, let's get sparkling wine. And so I got a um, German Riesling sect, you know, German sparkling wine, a dry one. And, um, and I, I loved, I, I loved this wine at the time. And I remember we like open it up and pour it. And I like put my nose in the glass and I'm like, get lost in the glass and I come out and I was like, oh God, that Jasmine, it's so nice. And my friend looked at me and put his, um, bled his nose in the glass and he was like, Jasmine, you're right. It smells like Jasmine. And he looked at me and he was like, couldn't believe it. Like he wouldn't have thought of that, you know? Right. And he, um, and he goes, God, I wish you were always with me when I drank wine because wine just makes more sense when you're around. And that thought really stuck in my head. I was like, there's gotta be a way to make wine make more sense for people. You know, right. like there's gotta be an easier way. And I kept just kind of chewing on that idea. And um, about a few days later, I came up with this idea of drawing visual tasting notes for wine. And this is actually how I got started. So I got started in uh, 2011 drawing visual tasting notes for wine. And they'd be this very simple, you know, like eight and a half by uh, 11, you know, I draw hand drawn on copy paper. And I would like one side, I would draw an image of the bottle with the label on it. So you could see what the wine was. And the other side, I would be like on the nose and I would draw like really simple imagery of how it smelled and then on the palate. And then I would, um, and you know, simple imagery again. And then, um, and then I'd have like taste great with, and I like food suggestions. And I just started drawing these because I was like, this would work because you see the image and bam, you know what the wine's like and it'll just make sense yeah. to people. And so I brought it into Fred at the wine shop and I was like, Fred, I came up with this idea. I've never seen it before. What do you think? And he just, he, and Fred, Fred is like a total curmudgeon. He's a super good guy, but he does not compliment anybody. He is a total, <laughs> he is a total curmudgeon. And he, um, he looked at him for a really long time and he said, he looked at me and he's like, how about we trade one of these? How about you draw one of these for me a week in exchange for a bottle of wine? And I was like, what the hell just happened? You know? <laughs> and um, he started posting them on his, the Facebook page for his wine shop to advertise new wines by the glass and new bottles to, um, and uh, within three weeks, they had gone viral. I was getting emails from China, Australia, France, um, Hong Kong, Argentina, oh um, New Zealand. Um, the, the on in the third week, Kermit Lynch Wine posted reposted because I had drawn one of their sparkling wines, a Bougie Sardon, and they re, they posted the drawing of their Bougie Sardon, and they called it a new standard in wine reviews. Because no one had wow. ever, no one had ever published. Now we see all this visual imagery to represent wine, but this right, is right. this is this is the middle of 2011, and there right. was not visual imagery for wine yet. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it turned out, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I've actually had a, this is mind-boggling. But I've actually had been contacted by a historian whose focus is histories of taste, like literally how people think about food and how they t represent flavors and wine and all, like anything where you're using physical mouth taste that's what, that's his specialization and um wow. and and he's like studied histories of taste how people communicate it you know across time which blows my mind and he said this is never he's like they this is totally new this hadn't been done before and so um that's actually what started my career the um within a month and a half Eric Asimov recommended it in the New York Times 
And um, I started getting contacted by wineries asking if they could send me wine. Wow. And, um, and then by, uh, so I, um, February of 2012, I got an email out of nowhere inviting me on my first wine trip, which I took in April of 2012. And so that's how I got started. And then over time, it evolved into also writing. And then over time, still evolved into speaking and, and creating seminars like I do now. That is that is just my blowing. It's just like just the the little thing that you had in your head, and you just it just spawned into this incredible. And you know, this is something that benefits a person like myself, which I'm not a book reader, like a, a real like book reader. I like I have to have like visuals. Yeah, and yeah. that is incredible. That is just an incredible story. Um, but before. I, we go any further. I just want to reintroduce. We have been having such a great conversation. I'm, I'm sitting and sharing the screen and breaking bread with Elaine Chacon Brown. Uh, I was practicing her You're, middle name. It was brilliant. Over <laughs> you, it was, it's the best pronunciation I've ever heard outside my family. That was great. I'm super I was, impressed. I was, I was laughing so hard when you sent me that, that recording of, of you. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> Well, but the but other it people get it's hard because it because yeah. the emphasis is not where it would be in regular English, and um, it's you know it's a Unangan name. I mean, people don't even know what Unangan is, you know. And so, um, but yeah, the the tip I always give people is that it sounds just like Chekakan without the extra ka. <laughs> yeah. And she's like one of the most badass badasses in the history of American music. So you got to remember Chekakan. You know? I love it. I and love so it. You I just Chuck a con to con, and there you are, you know. So, but I, a, a friend of mine, I created some webinars for him, or some seminars for him. This is what la, uh, early last year, we could still do this in person. And he, he was really, really nervous about mispronouncing my name. And I was like, no, 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 it's cool. You love Chuck a con. You just remember Chuck a con, Chuck con. He's like, okay, Chuck a con, Chuck con, Chuck a con, Chuck con. So he got up and he's like, I'd like to introduce Elaine Chuck a con, Chuck con, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is too much that is that is too much i love it i love it i love the humor um and like somebody just wrote you need no intro it's absolutely right you just it's amazing what you've done what you're doing right now in the industry um just all the accolades that you've received in just the past few years um reading i was just reading that you know in your bio, in 2019, you're you're named one of the most inspiring people in wine and the wine industry. I mean, you're inspiring to me now. Like this is just everything that you've done from the the fishing to the creativity of putting the 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 artistry to the pages that so many people like myself need. It's it's inspirational. It's innovative. It's it's creative and it's fun and it's such an amazing story. So. Now that all that is has taken off for you, and you've you've been in now you've you've helped co-write the Oxford Companion, right? And the wines and the World Atlas of Wine. Yeah, the, so yeah, two so, different editions, right? Yeah, right. In the World Atlas of Wine, I um, wrote all, rewrote all of the West Coast and then um, part part of the Southwest, and helped um, help Jancis identify writers for the rest of North America. 
And, um, and then the Oxford Companion to Wine, you know, that's a huge, so many writers go into writing that. And so I wrote several entries for it, but I'm, they're already, so the fourth edition came out like three years ago and they're already in the process of rewriting for the fifth edition. And so I'm actually contributing a lot of the regional parts of the fifth edition for Oxford Companion. We're working on that now. Bravo. Love it. Love it. And, you know, I've been, I've been sitting with a lot of, uh, and that's how I basically kicked off breaking bread with Corey was really highlighting um, women's international day, women's history month. Mm -hmm. And I had so many wonderful and innovative and inspiring, empowering ladies that I was sharing the screen with. And, to hear what you're, you're doing and what you've done. Um, what is your inspiration now? What is your focus now on as far as even women, women of color in the industry? Where, where would you like to see that go? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of my time now is spent, you know, kind of doing what I can behind the scenes to really support people and try to open up as many doors and kind of smooth the road where I can. And, um, and so a lot of a lot of that work is done in relation to people of color. So black indigenous and people of color and, and women as well. But the truth is um, I, if I meet someone and I can see they're genuine and they're in earnest, then I, and they, if they ask me for help, then I'm, and I can do it, then I'm going to do it. Like, that's just, that's just how I am. So, so because of how things have been historically, there's a real imbalance in terms of opportunity and access to opportunities and resources for black indigenous and people of color and and to some extent for women as well. And so there's more readily expressions of need that come up there. But I, but I, I genuinely, if somebody needs help and I'm the one that can help them, I'm, I'm going to do that. So some, you know, sometimes people have other connections and I'll say, you know, and, or, or I know, actually, I don't have the bandwidth or the time right now, but I'll, so I'll try to connect them to somebody else that could help, you know, I'll do things like that. Um, In terms of what inspires me to do that, I, I am Alaska native and I, I grew up really lucky close to my grandparents on both sides and my great grandparents on my mother's side. And my great grandparents lived into my twenties they were both, um, my great grandfather was fully Unong and my great grandmother fully Sukbak. And, and, um, they were little, <laughs> little tiny native people. You know, <laughs> they, uh, my great grandfather, he was born in a semi subterranean home, a Barabara. Um, and, uh, you know, he w- started his life in a fully indigenous subsistence lifestyle. And um, then when the 1918 pandemic, both of my great grandparents were orphaned. And, um, you know, I always say it's a miracle I'm here because it, it really is like that the, they survived that flu pandemic is a miracle. And then they um, they had two children, but one of them died as a baby. And so the fact that my grandmother survived is a miracle. And then she went on to have my mom and then my mom, me and um and when I was quite young, they were starting to have health issues and they would come in. Um, they, you know, they helped raise me. And I, so I spent a lot of time with them and I would often be with them when like a health crisis went down or they'd have to be medevaced into a hospital or, you know, by plane because Alaska is so remote. And there were, there were a few different times where I was with my great grandmother when she was being seen by a doctor. And the doctors, of course, were always white. 
and um, my great grandparents, they could speak English, but they had a really heavy accent. And I, I, of course, had grown up with it, so I was used to it. And one of the, when I was 10 years old, I was in the hospital with my great grandmother, and my mom had stepped away for a little bit, and the doctor came in, and I could hear that she didn't, he closed the curtain. He wanted to give her an exam, and he closed the curtain, so I was outside the curtain. But there, it's only a curtain, you can hear everything. Right. And he, he was really aggressively questioning her. And I could hear that she couldn't understand his accent. So she couldn't answer the questions. And she would ask, you know, she would ask, what did you say? And he couldn't understand her. And he was responding as if that meant she was one, hard of hearing, and two, not intelligent. And so he started getting really aggressive and pushy in the questions. And she was starting to get upset because she... She was like, why can't you just re-say it? Right. And she knew he was being rude. And I, you know, and I was 10 years old and I, this was my grandma, you know, this is like one of the loves of my life. And this doctor is doing this. And I burst through the, I burst through the curtain and I started translating for them. And again, from English to English, that's what's so ridiculous. But I, you know, <laughs> but I started translating for them and it was just this, um, and then, you know, it was this moment where here's this person I love more, almost more than anyone. And this is happening to her. Right. And the thing was, like, I, I, rec I recognize that in a lot of contexts I pass and people don't think I'm Native. But I'm, my great-grandma and I, we're, we're, we're the same, right? And for her, it, this to be happening to her meant there's no reason it wouldn't happen to me. Right. But that means that it's entirely arbitrary who it does happen to. It's only coincidence that I might be someone that can pass, right? It is only coincidence. I didn't choose that. I don't get to choose it. I can't control it. And my great-grandmother did not deserve to be treated like that. Right. And that's what inspires me. I, I inter I'm going to intervene like that. I'm going to burst. If I see this going on, I'm going to burst through the curtain to help, you know? Because um, because we deserve to be fostered in love together, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So is that that just kicked it all off? And and what? How proactive you are now? I mean, you're just you're, you probably continue to be proactive from then on. But now it seems like the the world, the industry needs that that push. I always say it needs that little that uplift yeah. that community with each yeah. other. Um, that, that backup, Hey, I'm your backup. I'm, I'm your wingman. I'm your, you know, I, I, I got your back. You know, we need to back you up and, and get you through this. And that's, that's the thing. So as far as, as far as even just uh, women in general, like, do you see, do you see it, uh, moving do you see it evolving do you see it in, in a positive way do you still see some setbacks that need to be pushed through yeah i mean i th i think it's still a pretty mixed bag to be honest uh there's um there are a lot of good things going on and then there still are also a lot of um people that are resistant to that change and i i really and and there's even a lot of people that really mean well and they want things to be good for other people, but have, have been trained by our own culture 
to have habits that inadvertently exclude other people. Right. And that's really hard because a lot of people, they don't want to be corrected or, and they don't want it to be suggested that they might be harming someone else. But the truth is we were all raised in a racist system and an ableist system and an ageist system and a sexist system. We've all been raised in a system that has taught us to be disrespectful of each other, to not notice who's in front of you, but instead, and instead to make assumptions about who's in front of you. And a lot of us inadvertently interact with each other to figure out what can you do for me instead of how can we be here together? Right. And I think that's the thing that we all should be asking ourselves. How, where am I resisting loving who's in front of me? For me, the most helpful realization in my, in my life was realizing love is not a thing you, you save for certain people. (laughs) You know, I think we're often taught, Oh, I'm supposed to only love like who I'm married to or something like, or my kids or right. But no, Love is not something you save for certain people. Love is something you want, like for me, realizing I could think of my life as if I'm going to live a life of love, that everything I do is going to be radiant of love. And, and by doing that, I can show people, we, you know, Corey and I get to hang out, we get to break bread and share love together, right? Absolutely. We can bring that into everything we do. And that the freedom of that, it's like releasing the weight of the world to know I don't have to carry bullshit. I don't have to be closed. I don't have to save things for some, to only give to certain people. I can just be as open to love as I can be. That is profoundly freeing and lightening. And, and I, my, basically like my life goal is to just keep getting better at that. And, and because if, I, if that's my goal, then it's like, how can I be best with Corey now? Right. And later I'll figure out how can I be best with Rachel, my daughter? And you know, like, how can I be best with this person now? Cause it's about yeah. us together. How can we share now together? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. And I, I, I totally believe that too, that, you know, we need to be more harmonic and just being uh, supporting one another. You know, I think that's the thing. I see a lot of things that are still, we, I hear support, 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 but then I hear, then I see negative, negative, negative. And it's like, I think it just needs to, I think we all need to do our part to just say, hey, we're all in this together. We're all in this to, to support one another. And the more, I always say, the more that we break down the barriers and create more diversity out there, more color the more opportunity that everybody's going to have. That's the thing the we all joke. benefit. We all benefit. Yeah. 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 And it, I, I don't think a lot of people see it that way. They just see it's just, it, it's, I see a lot of selfishness and it's like, man, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It, has, it could just be that, hey, we're, if this person does good, then, hey, man, I'm so happy for what you're doing. If this person's doing good, you know, and really embrace that and celebrate it. Celebrating is is a thing that we need to do and it's a ritual of just life and love and harmony and i think that word celebrate needs to be utilized so much more often when we get together and we talk to one another and you do that 
so well. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I, I'm so, uh, you know, I, I don't even have the words uh, to, to, to say what it means to be sitting here, talking mm. with you, sharing your story, um, sharing laughs with you, breaking bread with you. Um, it's just an amazing thing. Um, and so I know, I know we get like so much time on Instagram and, and I, I, I love to continue this. We definitely got to do this again. Yeah, we got to do this again. We got to definitely do this again. Um, just the support and the fun, the spirit that you have, have shown me is it's, it's something that just inspires me to continue to do my work, my well, share, my vision, share well, my journey. Let me say, I mean, Corey, what you're doing with this series, this IG Live series, you're demonstrating exactly what you just described, you know, really celebrating people and each other and, and our successes. And, you know, thank you for that. You're, you're being an example. And that's a blessing for all of us. You know, it's really important. So uh, thank you. Thank you. You're going to bring me to tea. I don't want to. Crying like, is good, too. Is good too. Yeah. So, you know, now that, you know, like I said, I hate, I hate going to this part where we're starting to get close to the end, but you know, um, I, I just got to say it again. Thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing your time. It's, it's, it's vital, um, that people know even just to say thank you, you know, it, it's important, you know, people's time is valuable and, and I just really appreciate everything that you've done in just the last few few weeks with me and, and connecting with me and, and showing your support and love and I really appreciate that so I want to end with this as, as because we've talked a lot about inspiring words and celebration and community and moving things forward what would you like to give everyone not just women but everyone that is getting ready to take their journey into the wine industry or they're in the middle or near their crossroads and they're going like should I stick with the wine industry? Should I do this? Because there's so many this and that. What would you like to tell them? What kind of advice would you give them? I think we just have to answer one question. And that's what do we want our lives to be about? That's it. Absolutely. What do, we, what, what do you want your life to be about? And how you spend your time is what's going to answer that question. You know, who do you want to align with? How are you right. spending your time? Those are the two things that determine what your life's about. So what, what do you want your life to be about? That's the only way to answer questions like, should I stay in this industry or not? You know, like, who do you want to align yourself with? What, how do you want to spend your time? Those are the ways to answer what do I want my life to be about? Amen to that. I love that. I love that. I, I, need, a, I need to put that... <laughs> My, like my house when I enter. <laughs> I, love, I love your words. I love your words. Like I said, it's, it's inspiring. It's empowering. It's supporting. It's celebrating. I mean, it's anything that I can say. It's just uh, that just comes to my mind. It's, it's what we celebrate in the glass when we smell and taste what's in the glass. Everything that we talked about, everything that you touched on today and shared, shared with is just everything that I can imagine what is in that glass. That's a story. It's, it's the novel. It's the book that we want when we pop open that bottle and we want to get, we want to celebrate something. You just did that. You just did that for me. And hopefully I, I know you probably did that for everyone out there watching this right now. I, I just, I can't say enough. 
Um, so thank you so much for your time, Elaine. Uh, Elaine, check on Brown. I got it right. Did I say it right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you so much for your time and your support. And we definitely got to do this. Yeah, again. let me know when. We'll do it. We'll have fun. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, you can catch Elaine right now sharing Tara Gomez's story on verticals on Psalm TV. If you don't have it, you got to get it and just watch it. If you listen to Elaine's words, narrate and see Tara and her dad. I mean, I was in tears like practically the entire time. It is an inspirational, another empowering and supporting story celebrating women winemaking. And it is just, it's mind blowing. And so this is something that should be shared with your family, with your friends, even if by yourself, grab yourself a cup of popcorn, grab yourself a glass of wine and sit down and watch it and celebrate. It is just an, uh, uh, just a, a beautiful story. So thank you once again for sharing uh, your time with me and sharing all your lovely stories. And we'll do this again. Sounds great. So one quick thing is just that yeah. the, ep the episode on Tara is still free to view for one more week on Psalm TV. Right. Part of the, our agreement, we wanted more people to be able to see it. And so it is free to stream on Psalm TV um, for another week. And then it'll go back behind the subscription service. So, Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I see Tara right there. Thank you, Tara. I love you. I love you and Elaine so much. I got to cheers to, all, to you and to all the ladies that are empowering, inspiring people in the industry to do better to thank create you. community, to celebrate wine. You ladies are doing it. You ladies are rocking it. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks cheers for having you. me. Take care. Absolutely. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. <laughs>